Jeff, if we haven't met, and would love to meet you if you're new to Crossview. Um, so it's, it's a, the passage we're doing, we have two weeks left in our series, and then we're going to do a new series where we'll primarily be in Genesis. I'm really excited about it. But we're going to look at the Olivet Discourse. And I was, one of the things that I try to do sometimes, whether I'm teaching a, a Bible study or a small group or preaching, I think it's important for me to be able to put in my own words what is being said in the text. That if I can do that, if I can summarize it without looking at notes, it means I, I understand what I'm reading and I can tell you, right? It's important. And I was having a little fun. Uh, I mean, this is actually a pretty serious and intense text, but I was having a little fun with it because just grant me this for a moment. It'll make sense in a second, but we'll read through it. And it's almost as if Jesus says, the whole world is going to fall apart, but you'll still have a good hair day. Uh, you'll see when we read the text, he's like, wars, famines, plagues, which aren't funny at all. But then he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. And I was just reading through it this week and like, that's kind of funny. Like the whole world's going to fall apart, but we'll have a good hair day. So then I was thinking about my own good hair days. Um, and so I did a little deep dive into my portfolio of pictures and I thought I would bless you. Tara prayed that I would bless you. I want to bless you with some pictures. So this is me in third grade. That's just a nice little mop of uncut hair, it looks like. That's, that's me in fourth grade. I had a bowl cut. I was pretty... Now, hold it there for a second. I, I did this partly because my hair is a little funny. I actually... But I also did this because I, I was remembering back to the days when you couldn't do technology on a long road trip, which is what is going on here. I'm in the backseat with my sister. The next picture. This is why you let your kids do... That's my sister's leg <laughs> smashing my face. Anyway, that was just bonus picture. So that's my other sister, my older sister. That's me with bleached hair. That's interesting. This is what it looked like. I was orange when I first did it. That's me and my friend Joe. So most of the pictures then were from the year I spent overseas. This is Elmar and Zach. They were on my team, and we grew our hair out. So that's a good hair day. That's a little better. I like that one. There you go. It's got to get in full effect. This next one's pretty good. That's a good, that's a good look. There's me with Kami, and then these are my two favorite of all time. I think I've showed these before, but I just, me and Ronald McDonald sitting at McDonald's in downtown Baku, Azerbaijan. There you go. So there is my pictures of good hair day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for clapping. All right, but on a more, on a more serious note, actually, this is a, this is a pretty, uh, it is a pretty intense passage. I think it's appropriate. I think time, I even had some people say it was a very well time for me to hear some of this stuff. We're going to read what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. And I, what I, what I want to do is, um, as you read biblical prophecy, I do think, and, and you can look at all these, these texts where, throughout the whole Bible, and if I, I read your Bibles, really important, get to know the story. But there's prophecy throughout the Bible, and, and usually what is going on is there is something that applies, even in Jesus' language, there is something that Jesus is saying in the prophecy or these other prophets, right, Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah or Ezekiel, that applies to the people hearing the prophecy. But, but at least, especially the Old Testament prophets, they were poets. 
And so their poetry, the language they used, lended itself to go beyond. And so there would be like a, a fulfillment that made sense to the people hearing, but there was always something in the language that, well, there's, got, there's even more, greater, or deeper meaning to this prophecy, right? And we know as Christians, it all points to Jesus. So what we're going to read is, is the Olivet Discourse. I think it's like Tuesday or Wednesday of Holy Week. Jesus is giving this teaching. And, um, and it's often called by scholarship the Little Apocalypse. Because it's going to read, and if, if we kept reading through, we stop at verse 19, that's our text this morning, but it's going to read with very strong language that makes you think of the end of the world. And, and we can have that conversation another day. What I want to do this morning, if you'll journey with me, is I do think the initial points Jesus is making in this Olivet Discourse is really to prepare his disciples for what's going to happen in the next 40 years. And there's all kinds of historical evidence. It doesn't mean that this language doesn't point beyond that. We just don't have time to go there right now. But he's talking about primarily, and it's strong language, and it's intense. And, if, and, and you'll even see, like, you and I will read this, and we'll be like, that sounds heavy. And that's a little terrifying. But throughout it, Jesus is going to say, don't panic. You don't need to worry. You'll have a good hair day. Not a hair on your head will perish. That's... And his, his, you just read it with that demeanor. It's like this intense sermon. But Jesus' assumption is that you and I, because, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get really theological this morning, actually. Let me nerd out a little bit on theology. I love what we're going to talk about today. But, but it, it all has to do, we'll get it, it all has to do with the temple. So chapter 21, verse 5. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. They're, they're, you know, and a lot of these guys are like from Galilee. Like they only come to Jerusalem a few times a year and they're just marveling at this amazing, I mean, if Herod, Herod was working on the temple, if Herod knew how to do it, he knew how to build, right? And so it's an amazing temple. So the disciples are like, this is really cool. Jesus says the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Total killjoy, right? Like, again, in my own words, the disciples are like, this temple's amazing. Jesus is like, it's all coming down. Uh, okay. <laughs> but the disciples are intrigued, right? They've been with him for three years. And, and so it's kind of a big deal. And again, let me say this as well, because we'll, we'll talk about this throughout the message as well. The temple in the Old Testament represents something unbelievably in, in, like important and significant to the Jewish people. So they obviously knew that God was the creator of all, that there was nothing, and God spoke it into existence. And so we can use these theological terms. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God is not bound by space or time. But they also believed, as it, gets, as it, as it unfolds in the story of God, that he uniquely dwelled in his temple. His people. And what set his people apart, what made them significant and important was that their God was dwelling with them in a unique way. And that was at the temple. It was God's house. It was where God spoke from. It was where he governed from, right? And so for Jesus to say, it's all coming down, that's like earth shaking for the disciples. It's end of, I mean, for them, it is, I mean, it would elicit, end of, this is like end of the world, at least end of the Roman Empire, which would be the end of a world they're ready to be done with. And so then they ask him, verse 7, Teacher, when will all this happen? 
And what sign will show us that these things are about to take place? They ask for a sign. I'll come back at the very end and just talk about, does God still give us signs? And this is what Jesus says. Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and saying the time has come. Jesus says, but don't believe them. Now, again, we could stretch this out, but, but I'm telling you that Rome came in, and there's, there's all kinds that we could get into, all kinds of reasons why this happened, but Rome came in in the year 70 and annihilated, like literally how we keep track of time, the year 70, so 2,000 years ago basically. Rome came in and annihilated the temple, and it's never been rebuilt. And there's no indications right now that it's going to be rebuilt anytime soon. So this really happened. Jesus is, Jesus is talking about how people are going to come. And as you got closer and closer to the year 70 and more and more war, war became more and more intense with the Roman Empire, there were, I could name people who stepped up and said, I'm the Messiah, follow me. Now they all proved to be false messiahs, led people to their deaths. That's why Jesus said, don't follow them, don't believe them. Very much played out the way he said it would. Verse 9, he says, and when you hear of wars and insurrections, I told you, he's kind of got this like, don't panic. Don't, wait, wait a minute, Jesus, wars and insurrections. No, don't panic. Don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first. I mean, it's just got I mean, to happen. And the end won't even follow immediately. And then he goes on and says, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I mean, this, this stuff was happening, and I think it was the year 68. I think there were four different Roman emperors in the year 68. I mean, that's a little bit of turmoil when you got four different emperors in one year. Like, all kinds of stuff is going on around this time. And there will be great earthquakes, and there will be famines. There were, there was a great famine because there was a crop failure in Egypt. There was plagues, plagues in Rome, plagues in many lands. And there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. So again, we can extrapolate this out, but, but I'm telling you, Jesus really was preparing his people for what the next 40 years were going to bring. And I say that even more so because if you're newer to the Bible, again, join a small group, jump into Sunday school. I'd love to talk to you about personal reading plans just to get to know the story of the Bible. Luke wrote two books. He wrote the book, the Luke that we're reading right now, and he also wrote the book of Acts. If, you're, if your Bible is, it goes Luke, then the Gospel of John, and then Acts. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And what I'm about to read is almost like a, it's like Luke is summarizing what he writes in the book of Acts. I mean, this is the stuff that happens in the book of Acts. Before all this occurs, verse 12, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons. You will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. Again, that sounds horrifying, but Jesus is like, well, don't be afraid. This will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words, and we will hone in on this. How does Jesus do this, give us these right words and and wisdom? But he says, I will give this to you that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Again, read through the book of Acts. That's basically exactly what happens. I mean, Jesus is... He's saying these things not to scare his followers. He's saying this to prepare them. Don't be shocked when these things happen because they're go- they have to happen. They're going to happen. This is just how it's going to play out. So you take a deep breath right at this point. Okay, there's going to be famines and plagues and wars and insurrections. That sounds awful. Jesus says not to panic or worry. We're going to have opportunity to testify to him. Okay, 
But then he's not even done. Verse 16, even those closest to you, your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. Verse 18, this is why I laughed. But not a hair of your head will perish. You'll still have a good hair day. Verse 19, by standing firm, you will win your souls or gain your lives. Save yourselves by enduring, by persevering. So pretty intense. And honestly, I mean, we'll come back to this in a little bit. But it's also like, I mean, if, we, if you think about the last three years, have there been wars in our world? Plagues? Have relationships within families deteriorate? I mean, it's, that's why it's like apocalyptic in a sense. It's like Jesus, I really do think, is talking to his disciples about the next 40 years. But it's, it's not hard for us to extrapolate this out, especially then when he begins to talk about the coming of the Son of Man and the verses that follow. But I want to point out, just as we journey through this and you try to wrap your mind more and more around what Jesus is saying, the disciples ask for a sign and Jesus doesn't really give them any kind of sign that's helpful other than you'll know you're on the right path if you're suffering. <laughs> it's like, a, thanks, Jesus. That's more of what I wanted to hear. And that God will provide what you need when you need it. And the other thing I want to say before we kind of dive into some deeper points here, but even just reading through this and reflecting on, again, the way, I, the way Jesus is just interacting, it's like warning and preparation, but there's also just this sense of like encouragement. And it's almost like Jesus is saying in times of crises, Christians, I read it, I read it this way, Christians should be the calmest people on the block. But you know, I don't really like the word should um, because then we should on ourselves all the time and create worse problems. So maybe we can say it this way. Maybe it's better to, in times of crises, Christians can be the calmest people on the block. You might look at the last three years and say, I wasn't the calmest person in my whole county. <laughs> well, we're not shooting on each other this morning. But the point is, if you open yourself up to who Jesus is and what is available to you in Christ, if there's another crisis, and there just might be, you can be the calmest person on the block. Uh, that's some of what we're going to kind of work through today. And even, I, I, you know, even you get into some of this stuff, people will read the Olivet Discourse, and, and it's almost like we get all caught up in signs, which, again, how clear are these signs? I mean, how many times have these things happened throughout the last 2,000 years of human history? But sometimes as Christians, we even get, we get sidetracked on the wrong things, and we start reading through this passage thinking it's going to give us supernatural insight into the future. Well, I mean, there's going to be wars and famines and plagues. I don't know that that's supernatural insight. What, what I really think Jesus is trying to do is realign ourselves onto him to not be surprised when the world is falling apart and to find supernatural endurance and strength to persevere, right? That's what he says at the end. That's what you need. You need to persevere. You shouldn't be surprised or shocked when the world is falling apart because the end, I mean, the end hasn't come yet. So I got three points. The first point is a big point. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this, and it's foundational. It's, founda it's, it's, it's radically foundational. I might be a little bit more theological than some of you are interested in, but it's still just hang in there. I'm going to read a, I'm going to read a lot of Bible verses, so it's just good truth this morning and permit me to nerd out a little bit, because I, I do love theology, and I love to study this stuff. 
So this whole conversation is beginning with Jesus saying not one stone will stand upon another one. And in 40 years, that's basically what happens. And so the first question that I was just wrestling with this week as I was sitting with the text was why? <laughs> why did God let the temple which in the Old Testament is God's own place of dwelling with his people on earth, why did God let the temple cease to exist? Why, 2,000 years ago, did God allow the Roman Empire to come in and annihilate Jerusalem? I mean, his precious city. The, uh, and the temple, his unique home on earth, and it's never been rebuilt. That's the first question I want to sit with for a while. And I'll, I'll answer this in a variety of ways. I think it will become crystal clear by the end. But I want to start with a very familiar passage. And if it's not a familiar passage, I'm excited to be one of the first people to read it to you. Because <laughs> it's one of the great, great high points in the New Testament. And it comes in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It's the end of his prologue, verses 14 to 18. John says this, The Word... Here the Word is Jesus. The Word is the second person of the Trinity. The Word became flesh. The Word became human and made His home among us, dwelt among us, literally tabernacled or templed among us. That's radical language to use of a human being about the presence of God. And John is excited to use that language. He says Jesus was full of unfailing love. And faithfulness, grace and truth. That's how the Old Testament authors talked about God. John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. He says, John the Baptist testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am for he existed long before me. And from his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness, his grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Oh, that's good. One theologian says this, In Jesus, God's human presence, the unique Son who reflects the glory of His Father, God's essential character full of grace and truth becomes visible. Paul would say that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. In this unique and novel form of God's presence with us, which is the hope of the prophets finally fulfilled in Jesus, that God would, would dwell in a new temple in the midst of his people. Read Ezekiel. It's a big part of Ezekiel. Jesus himself is God among us, God with us, Emmanuel, the new temple that fulfills and surpasses those of what we would call the Mosaic Covenant. Now we see this play out. I mean, as what John says. We see this play out in Jesus' ministry. I've talked about this before. Jesus walked around doing... a primarily around the table, what should only happen at the temple. I mean, the Jews were very aware of their sin and their failure and their rebellion, very aware of their idolatry. And they knew that the way they dealt with this in the presence of a holy God in their midst was to go to the temple and offer sacrifices. Now, that's how they would experience forgiveness. And Jesus would sit around a table hanging out with sinners. He wouldn't say, well, go to the temple. He would say, I forgive your sins. 
And it was mind-blessed by the religious leaders. You can't do that. They got to go to the temple. No, I have authority. I forgive their sins. Prove it. Okay, you're healed. Oh, my goodness, Jesus. And I've used this analogy before, and it's very personal right now because I'm about a month and a half away from needing to go renew my driver's license. And I'm in this debate right now with myself. I can mail it in and get a license that's good only in the state of Illinois, right? You can't fly anywhere with it. Or I can go into the DMV and get a better license that I could actually use at an airport. I don't know how this happened, but whatever. That's the story we live in, right? But, but imagine I go to lunch with, well, just with Jesus, and I'm sharing my predicament. Jesus, what do I do? Do I get the cheap one or the better one? And oh, how does this work? And he says, oh, I'll just give you the good one right here. No, no, I got to go to the DMV. No, I have authority to renew your license right here, right now. Poof, renewed. That's basically what Jesus is doing with the temple and forgiveness. I can forgive your sins right here, right now. The temple is obsolete. You understand why people were really, really mad about it. Now, he also made it pretty clear. I mean, John chapter 2, Jesus says this, verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What, they exclaimed, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? That's, that's idiocy. Jesus said, but, but when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. In other words, Jesus understood, again, think about this, God and human flesh. The word became flesh and templed, tabernacled among us. Jesus understood his body to be the real dwelling place of the presence of God. And so do you need, you know, as you get into the New Testament, you know, I'll read some more verses, but, but the old temple was really always just a picture to prepare us for the coming of Christ. And once you have the real thing, you don't really need the picture anymore. As I was flipping through old pictures trying to find idiot pictures of my hair, I came across my original picture of Kami. I don't remember exactly how I got taken, but at one point, you know, we didn't have digital phones back then, folks. So you had to actually take a picture, and I had one picture of Kami. And I had it on my wall, you know, when we started dating. I was my girlfriend. And I graduated, and I went overseas, which is where I grew my hair out and looked really cool. And I had that picture and I remember there were, I, I had, I, there were days, because I was in love, and there were days I would just stare at that picture. That's my girl, right? I miss my girl. I want to be with my girl. I did that. I was overseas. We were on the other side of the ocean. But imagine if I go home, Kami and Jay were at first service, but I haven't gotten to talk to them too much. Imagine if I go home, I'm excited to be home, Kami and Jay are excited to see me, and I just pull out my phone, and I'm just staring at that picture. Like the real Kami is right here, but I'm just staring. You don't do that. That's foolish, right? You enjoy the real thing, and Jesus is the real thing. So why? Why is the temple destroyed in the year 70 and has never been rebuilt? Well, because Jesus came, <laughs> and he's the real thing. He's what it all pointed to. You don't need the picture or the shadow anymore. Now, I think that makes sense. Let me, this is where I want to nerd out a little bit and go a little bit farther because I want you to see, and I could go even farther than just, but I, I want to add to this. So not only do the New Testament authors talk about Jesus as the temple, the place where all this happens, but he's also the high priest. 
read in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. And then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. You see right there, Jesus is the high priest. So, so on one level, he's the temple, but he's also the one offering the sacrifice. You see that? He's the high priest, just in case you missed it, chapter 8. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a better covenant with God based on better promises. So Jesus is the temple, but he's also the high priest. But he's also, you know, you're reading that, but wait a minute, he's the high priest, but isn't he the sacrifice? He is. What does John say in 1 John chapter 2? He himself, Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Two chapters later, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take, our, take away our sins. Or Hebrews chapter 10, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time, and then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, which is important, we'll come back to that, and he awaits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. There's a lot of rich theology there. But even notice, Jesus is awaiting. And we're living in that time where we are, because he will end evil. I mean, he has dealt the decisive blow to death and sin on the cross. But we live in this already not yet tension where we await his second coming. But what I want you to see there is Jesus is the temple. He's the high priest. And he's the lamb that is offered on the altar. So I hope you see that when we talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of all the promises of God in the Old Testament, we're not, we're not making this up. It's not hyperbole. We're not like, oh yeah, God makes all this, but, but, but somehow that, no, no, literally every theme in the Old Testament, every promise God makes finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're crazy about Jesus here, because there's nobody like him. Let me read another theologian here. What's better about this? Why is this better that the temple's never been rebuilt and we have Jesus? Well, Jesus' sacrifice is complete and final. He has done once and for all, for all time, everything that will ever be necessary for us to come into the immediate presence of God. He has made the once and for all sacrifice for human evil, the sacrifice that can really do away with the guilt and the effects of sin in our hearts. He has opened the way into God's presence such that we have free access, authorized by the high priest, into the inner sanctum of the temple where God dwells. And the author goes on to say, and I think it relates to even what we read in Luke 21, you and I don't have to panic, and we don't have to worry, and we can look for every opportunity to testify to God because there is such assurance that there is nothing. Once we have given our lives over to Jesus and received his gift of life and mercy and love and forgiveness, there is nothing that keeps us out of his presence. And we don't have to fly to Jerusalem or wait till airlines change their flight patterns to go to the temple mount jesus is with all of us here and now through the presence of the holy spirit amen and hallelujah you understand how this is better 
and you don't have to live in constant guilt and shame because Jesus' sacrifice was a one-time thing that took care of the sins of the world. Now you may have to come before the throne again and again and confess and repent and ask for renewal because we drift, don't we? We drift, but God is good and his mercy is good and his promises are true. Another way I like to say this is that Jesus is the temple to end all temples. And he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And he is the ultimate priest to point the way for all other priests. That's who Jesus is. Remember that. So part of entering the inner sanctum of the temple or being in the temple is being, I mean, the main thing is to be with God, to be in the presence of God. And the New Testament authors really lean into this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a bunch of verses from Paul, too. And maybe this is too, I was like, maybe this is too much to read. But I, again, I just love these verses. And maybe, maybe even if you're newer to church, this is a lot of theology to soak in. But maybe you write these things down and you play with the mystery of some of what I'm about to read. Because this is truth in Christ. But it's also very mysterious. And, and even like the practical outworkings of this are radical and immensely important. But they might not be obvious to you right out of the gate. And that's okay. <laughs> that's why we journey through some of the stuff together as a church family. But let me read. I want to I first read from Romans chapter 6 verses 3 to 11. Is, Again, because Jesus is the high priest, is the sacrifice, is the true temple, and the whole point was to be with him, I want you to pay attention to the language of being with Christ. Paul is talking about baptism, really the symbolism of baptism, what we're, what we're demonstrating when we get baptized. And I want to say there are some people starting to ask about baptism. And if you're interested or you're curious, if you have committed your life to Jesus, if you haven't, I'd love to talk to you. And if you have and you haven't been baptized, I'd love to talk to you about getting baptized. Baptism is important for Christians. This is what Paul says. And again, listen for this language of with Christ and what does it mean? Wrestle with what it means. Have you forgotten that we were joined with Christ in baptism? We joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Do you want a new beginning? Do you want a new birth? We'll be crucified with Christ and resurrected with Christ. Live new lives. Since we have been united with Christ in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are, we kind of sang this, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to fear. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we also live with Christ. We are sure of this. We have this certainty, this assurance, because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And if you're with Christ, death has no power over you. Amen and hallelujah. <laughs> That's good news. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. The, the, the ramifications of that theological truth are immense. So if you don't really understand, sit with that. Sit with that for a little. What does that mean? 
Or how about Galatians 2? When I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us, remember what I read in Hebrews earlier, seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So your identity is is somehow, again, you serve a God who's not bound by space or by time. You're, You're somehow with Christ in the heavenly realms. So, the world might be falling apart. And people may be betraying you, and you may come across famines or plagues or wars or insurrections. And guess what? The true you is still somehow with Christ in the heavenlies. So do you need to be afraid? No. Do you need to worry? No. (laughs) Because you're with Christ. How about Colossians? This includes you who were once far away from God. I mean, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. But, but yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence, into the temple. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That's who you are with Christ and in Christ. Colossians 1, I, I threw this in here, just, I think it kind of adds, he's, Paul's kind of talking about his apostolic ministry, but I, I think it really applies to all of us who say yes to Jesus and take up our own crosses. Paul says, I am glad when I suffer for you. He's talking to the church in Colossae in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. We are the body of Christ and we suffer with Christ. That's what we do. And finally, you guys know I love these verses, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. I I don't know, this wasn't the point of the sermon, but, but maybe this is what some of you need to hear this morning. Think about the things of heaven. Think about the ways of God. There's plenty of voices trying to distract you from the things of heaven. Don't do that. Think about the things of heaven. For you died to this life, and your real life, your real life, your truest you is hidden, I love this, hidden with Christ in God. I still don't know the full meaning of all that that points to, but I love it. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. I mean, part of what that means is that you and I don't even know the fullness of who we really are yet, but it will be revealed. What what does Paul say? When Christ, who is your life, your life, your life is Christ, when he is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. This is good news. In summary of that, Paul says, I suffer with Christ, I am crucified with Christ, I die with Christ, I am buried with Christ, I am raised to live with Christ, I am carried off to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father with Christ. So if the question comes up, why did God allow the temple to be destroyed in the year 70 and never be rebuilt? Well, because 
It's obsolete now that Christ has come. Because Christ is the true temple and we live our lives. You could say we die our deaths and we live our lives with Christ. And a lot of times, I've, I've, I've talked about this a few times in the last couple years, it really hung on to the language of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where the resurrected Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I love that. Jesus is with you. He's, he's, not, he's not forsaking you. He's not like, well, I'll leave you alone for a while, but then I'll come back. He's with you always to the end of the age. And so I can say Jesus is with you, but I also can say, and I think there's a slightly different implication to this, you are with him, <laughs> You are with Christ. That's what Paul says over and over. No matter what you're going through, you are with Christ. And he's your life. And he's amazing. Being with Jesus is part of what makes then enduring these difficult times, these difficult circumstances possible. You cannot do this on your own. And you will not be the calmest person on the block in the midst of crises if you forget what you amened a few minutes ago. That death doesn't have the last word anymore. That Christ Jesus, his life, he, he, he has allowed evil to do its worst to him and he has overwhelmed the world with love, mercy, forgiveness, and life. And you and I need to remember that if we're going to endure difficult circumstances or we won't be able that's the truth that we stand on that allows us to be calm we can say well i'm not going to panic because jesus said don't panic but that doesn't always work so we got to remember why did he say not to panic oh well because he's conquered death and we have nothing to fear you and i i, I talk about this a lot we are constantly being manipulated by fear and it challenges the biblical story. And if you and I don't counteract the stories that we're hearing, what will happen is we will begin to believe that fear is that, that evil is all conquering. That's the narrative of fear in our world. Evil is all conquering, and God is powerless. So everything you see going wrong in the world, God, God can't do anything about it, and you and I better be really afraid. Well, part of the Olivet Discourse is Jesus is like, well, I, I told you this stuff was going to happen. Why are you freaking out? I said it was coming. Do you think I'm surprised? My, my power's been overpowered by all the, no. Remember what I did on the cross? Evil's been defeated. We'll talk about in Genesis, the serpent's been crushed by the heel of the Messiah. <laughs> and so we don't have to be afraid. God has, these verses I read, yes, you and I are still waging war with sin. But what did Paul say? God has defeated sin, and so you and I can be set free. Do you have some ongoing sin patterns in your life that you're just tired of? They're wreaking havoc. You want to be separate? Jesus can set you free. Now, you might need people to walk with you. You might need to lean into the prayer. There's things that's why we talk about discipleship, learning this way of Jesus. But we want to walk with you. We want to endure together. I, one of the things I like to, we can get through anything if we do it together. Don't do it alone. Let's do this together. Be a part of our church community. Get in a small group. Get in Sunday school. Meet with some people. Just grab, have, sit with somebody you don't know and ask questions next week for the potluck. Just be, let's, get to, let's live life together because life is hard. And hard things might continue to happen in our world that we can't control. But, God, but Jesus says, don't worry. Don't panic. It may give you an opportunity to share the good news. Again, I, I was reading through this and just surprised by how calm Jesus seems when there's disturbances in the social order, disturbances in the natural order, and disturbances in family relationships. 
And I know how often we get to these places where we think, I need good circumstances to come my way. But I read through the Olivet Discourse, the good circumstances I see are not that your life is just going to be comfortable and easy and everything's going to go. The good circumstances I see that, that we're waiting is the return of Christ. <laughs> it's going to be great. And after he returns, it's going to be awesome. I've been telling people lately, I've been telling myself, eternity is a long time. So you got a bad five years. You got the ne- actually stuff's going on in your family in the next 15 years don't look great. Eternity's a long time, folks. You can endure 15 years for what Christ has done for you. You can endure 15 years. Eternity is a long time. Christ is coming back. That's a good circumstance. But it seems to me the good circumstances that Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse are opportunities to testify to him. Life's out of control. We're the calmest people on the block. How can you be so calm? I'm not worried because of Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus, thanks for this opportunity to testify to you, to point others to you, so that others can be with you as I am with you. I mean, those are the good circumstances, the good circumstances that he seems to be really excited about. That's what we're called to do. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to my last point here. I could say a little bit more about that. I also spent a little time thinking about the signs. Does God still give signs? It, it seems to me that he's giving his disciples very helpful signs for the next 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Does he still give signs today? And as I was asking that question, the very first thing I thought of was a conversation I had right out that door a couple months ago. There was a lady who, she grew up in DeKalb County. She knows some people in our church. And so whenever she's in town, which is probably twice a year, she comes to Crossview, and she worships with us. And so I've gotten to know her just throughout the last few years. And last time she was here, this is one, actually for me, I was thinking about signs for Crossview. One of the signs for me is when God is moving here on a Sunday morning, and people have stories to tell that happened because we were gathered together. And so a couple Sundays ago, she was here, and she was just sharing her story and how God had moved and spoken to her. And, and, it, and it led her to share with me this bigger story that's been unfolding in her life. That she, like many people in our world today, has struggled with why she's here. Does God love her? Is God there? Is God Jesus? And, and then this, 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 it makes me so sad, but it's such a prevalent qu- question. Who am I? What is my identity? Going so far, and this wasn't so much when I was growing up, but now it's like more and more where people aren't even just questioning their identity, but they're like even questioning just even their name that they were given. And so, so she was in the season where she was questioning all kinds of things and crying out to God and really trying to find herself, but she was even kind of going by a different name. That's just how, how, how far she was just kind of lost. And so she went out west to the, I think she, her goal was these gigantic tree forests in California, you know, the sequoias and the redwoods. And she's out there by herself, and she's crying out to God, and really primarily Jesus. She's experienced enough of Jesus to trust him, but she's, she's crying out for him. And while she's in one of her moments of desperation, she looks over at a tree with this on it. Jesus loves Angela G. That's her given name, Angela G. So she's going by a different name, and she reads, Jesus loves Angela G. on this tree. Somebody carved it years ago, but she felt like it was a sign for her. (laughs) Does Jesus still give signs? I think he does. I think he does. And I think he is unbelievably creative. 
Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And I believe he is trying to get your attention. If you and I would pause, stop panicking, stop worrying, pause long enough to listen. Stop being distracted by technology and entertainment. And pause, have a, have a contemplative moment with God. Ask a question and wait for an answer. Some of you are here this morning or online and you're exploring Christianity. And maybe, maybe God has given you a sign. That's why you even came to church today. Don't ignore that. This is the living God. And he will do whatever it takes to get your attention. Some of you have gotten stale. I know because you've told me. You've gotten stale. The last few years have really drained you of some of your passion and excitement. Well, well, today's a great day. Maybe God's giving you a sign. Maybe you can picture Jesus. You got your own, maybe you, you can think, oh, this happened this week. I didn't think about it, but it, Holy Spirit's letting you know. I was trying to get your attention this week. Why do you think that song came on the radio? Why do you think that person called you? I'm trying to get your sign. I'm trying to get your attention. Jesus wants to get your attention. He loves you. He cares for you. He's pursuing you. I was thinking about cross. I was thinking about several different stories. But the one that I think for me, you know, because we've gone through hard years. I mean, I think we're doing really well after all that we've walked through, but it's been hard. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, I don't want to build this up too much, but, but the timing and the unfolding of Nolan and Haley, Nolan's going to be our new youth pastor. I mean, there's just so much around. I've told several people, I feel like there's a sign from Jesus that he really loves our church. And he really cares about our church. There is a, there's an authentic youth pastor shortage. And, and Jesus sent us somebody that everyone's excited about. That's a sign. Jesus, Jesus is doing good things here, folks. He's changing lives. He's reigniting passion. He's drawing people closer to himself. Open your eyes to the signs. He is a living God who loves us and wants us to experience the life that he has for us even if circumstances are challenging. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, let's, um, let's just kind of walk through. I think it's good because we're, we, are, we are different places this morning. So we don't do this every week, but sometimes I think it's good to do this. If, if there's anybody here this morning who, who hasn't given their life to Jesus, but but maybe there's been a series of signs and you're not here, you're not listening online by accident, even on a podcast later on. And there's something stirring within you and, and Jesus has revealed himself to you and, and you, you actually have the, like incredible assurance of forgiveness of your sins. You've been carrying guilt and shame. You know you have rebelled violently against your loving creator and you have not known what to do about it, and for whatever reason, right now in this moment, it's like a sign from God. You can picture Jesus on the cross, and you know he's dying for you. And within you right now, even there's bubbling up this faith that, yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and he is risen from the dead, and I don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Maybe some of you are praying that, and you just want to say to Jesus right now, Jesus, you are my Savior and my Lord, and I will follow you. I will follow you. But the beauty of that prayer, too, is that there's, there's some of you in here who you've kind of gotten a little stale in your walk with God. It's okay, it happens. But he's been giving you signs that he's got more for you. 
He doesn't want you to just live, like barely survive. He wants to invite you into a deeper life of meaning and purpose where you're thriving in His presence. It doesn't mean life is easy, but you're, but you're aware of His presence. You're with Him and He's with you. So maybe this morning you just kind of recommit yourself to Jesus. I mean, I love that the phrase over in the, I will follow you, Jesus. I will follow You've done so much for me. I will follow you. I won't panic. I've been panicking. Things going on I don't like in the world. I can't control. I will follow you. I will surrender. You can do what you want with me. <laughs> do whatever you want. So Jesus, we pray these prayers to you. We know that you meet each of us personally where we are. We know that your pursuit of us is real and it never ends. You are with us and for us. And we say thank you. It's in your name we pray.